0: Welcome to Storybound, presented by LitHub Radio and the Pod Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. Coming up in one minute is a story told by Lydia Yuknovich, with original composition by Whiston and Warmack. Oh, and make sure to stick around until after the credits to learn more behind the scenes about how Jake Whiston approached the score. All right, now let's begin.
1: This is Storybound. I'm Lydia Yuknovich. Streetwalker. First thing in the morning when I take out the trash, I see it, syringe on the lawn. Still bloody. It spikes and chills my memory. Four long years of youth, sliding cold silver glint into waiting blue. My neighborhood is turning. It's not dramatic. It's no more or less real than TV, than other places I've lived. All those little white-lined streets. We can posture as a nation of shock all we want. It's still a story we know. Somebody wants something more than their own life. Somebody else is terrified by all that want. It's not possible in my neighborhood to tell who has money enough to live on and who does not, though it's clear that no one is wealthy. Old two- and three-story homes built in the early 1900s with questionable roofs and overstuffed leaf gutters. Ours, a sort of bohemian-looking hippie haven, both inside and out, overgrown garden, cracked eaves, front porch step rotting away. The rest of our street dotted with flat ramblers, faux stone facades, additions tacked onto additions like berserk extra appendages. One of the houses has been graced with a concrete lion, so regal, covered in moss and bird shit. Nor is it possible to tell who is liberal or who is conservative or nuts or brilliant or a criminal or a good citizen. All the facades need new coats of paint. All the yards need care. Even our fences are leaning toward giving up. The spaces between houses hold their secrets. Overflowing trash cans and piles of broken flower pots. Garden hoses all snarled up and molding. Our efforts at beautiful landscaping, creating their own ridiculous labyrinths between our homes. I've noticed that my neighbor Clark and I both wear sweatpants and sneakers after five and on weekends. Clark may be an alt-rider. He may be just a guy who lives in his mother's basement, in our Nike uniforms. Who can tell? In our hearts, we meant to complete all the projects, spiff up our neighborhood, improve our homes and selves. In reality, we're too fucking tired from too many jobs or kids or just the idea that nothing turned out the way we dreamed it would. Our sad little dream balloons, once swollen with hot air, deflating slowly like my aging breasts. On the other hand, money isn't what makes our houses homes. For example, instead of filling my house with things that cost money, I've filled it with things that comfort me. Plates and bowls filled with rocks and feathers and the small bones of animals. Cups with azure beads. Seashells and talismans and trinkets. And books. More books than you can possibly imagine. Books in every room, shelved on tables in stacks on the floor. Books have saved me from my former self. About the only thing of serious value to me inside my house is a vintage royal typewriter we lugged all the way back from France, imagining that some famous expat writer might once have plunked out something brilliant on it. And a coffee table. And a rug. I bought when I got tenure. My first non-garage sale furniture. I teach literature in college now. I write. I've become... Well, we don't say bourgeois very much in America, although these days the students love to say bougie. I'll just say middle class, but we all know there's no such thing as a middle class. In my neighborhood, they have developed a yearning for the dreaded neighborhood watch. Guy down the street stops me one night as I'm headed home lead armed with groceries. He's never spoken to me in his life. I've never even seen him poke his mole skull out of his white house. And he's bobbing his head around like a scared rodent. His eyes are darting out of their sockets. So titillated, he's sweating. He says, have you noticed the problem? What problem? You know. He looks one way, then the other. Go ahead, I'm thinking. No cars are coming. We're on our own street. We're in front of our own houses. He continues, all the dope peddling, the drug deals, and that woman being paraded up and down the street all day, all night, every day, every night. My God, we need to stand together before it's too late. There's a long pause while I consider this. Who's God, I wonder? I feel myself turn on him. Is my neighbor a white supremacist, a fascist, a bigot, a MAGA voter? Then I'm just me again. Who could miss it? What moron wouldn't notice? Not because they're doing anything to us, but because they're doing it too near us. The needle against the flesh threatens us with its obscenity, its mechanism of invading living skin. I carry my groceries back to my house. Clark, my sweat pants twin, the one across the street who lives with his mother and wears undersized rock concert t-shirts, and the exact same baseball cap every day of his life. A guy who inherited his money from an accident on the job, a fact that now works him over into bitter and pale and beer-bellied and pot-eyed, waves to me from the other side of the street. Then he crosses and stands on my lawn and says, they'll never change. It's like I always say, once a junkie, always a junkie. I feel anger welling up in my belly. For an instant, I want to hurl my knowledge at him like obscenities. Instead of saying, shut the hell up, you ignorant asshole, I want to scream Keats, Byron, Shelley, Van Gogh, Bacon, Elliot, Faulkner, For some reason, I feel a list of M's rise up in my throat. Mozart, Mingus, Monk, Monk, Miller, Malcolm even. I want to move on to Germans, Africans, Latin Americans, Russians, French, Swiss, periods, genres. I want to say if we didn't have junkies, we wouldn't have art, you asshole, but I don't. I just stare at him until he turns away and walks silently back to his yard, his front door, and gone. Anyway, it isn't true. Addiction doesn't make art, does it? What the hell am I worked up about? It's just Clark. I turn back toward my own house, and then it hits me. We are all alike in our silences. Inside, my husband is in his ad hoc studio painting Just a half room in our old, falling apart house, much like my writing room, carved out of the small space that would ordinarily be a kid's room. We don't make enough to rent him studio space, so we do what we all do. We invent ways to live what we cannot have. I set the groceries down with relief, not because I'm tired, but because I know he is responsible for dinner, because never again will I have to be responsible for dinner. This is part of my love for him. You'll never know the relief that a junkie or a woman can feel when the pressure of the giant script of woman or wife begins to lift. And he loves me too, because I can kiss the jagged scars on his wrist like it bleeds a sweet white sugar. And he can butterfly kiss the collapsed veins on my left arm under all the long sleeve shirts I wear to work. We're still learning to live in these houses, these lives. We're loving over our outcast and beaten hearts. For the longest time, neither of us could afford therapy, insurance, or any other route to wellness. Today, we probably could afford some kind of medical cure for maybe one of us, but neither of us has that much investment in attending to the hardcore addictions anymore, which is just as well. It's easier to keep drinking wine, downing prescription medications, moving potward down the road of our lives. The easy, low-key addictions of homeowners. Charisse, the neighbor on the other side of us, waddles out to feed her cats. A great, lumbering woman who is all heart, as if her body had puffed out from it. Our dog ate one of her cats. Well, killed it anyway. We don't know exactly how many more she has over there. We expect our dog will find out. Charissa understands. She goes inside. She will come out at exactly 6.30 a.m., start the Subaru, and go to work. She will come home at exactly 5.20 p.m., park the car, and go inside. On Friday morning, half an hour before the garbage truck comes, she will put her trash in the can, One time, out of the blue, she asks us if we want some poppies. She says she has some bulbs from somewhere in Asia, then lowers her voice. You know, the funny kind. I instantly want to fill a bed in my front yard. I'm sitting on the couch looking out the window when I see a flash of woman emerge from a space across the street, the alley between a house going to shit and a house being flipped. Right behind her a flash of man. He is skinny with desperation and she is skinny with fatigue. Both have the ashen flesh of heroin. I've seen them before. I can't help feeling like I know them in the dumbest way. They are always swearing, usually loud enough to be heard. She is always following him, up the street, down and up again. I think of the word cadaverous. I used to think the closer to death you get, that's where the life is. Now I watch from inside my house through a plate glass window. I hear my husband pissing in the toilet, an ordinary sound. And all I can think is, thank you, thank you, thank you. A minute later I see a second guy coming out after them, buttoning his fly. No subtlety. No attempt to hide, just buttoning his fucking fly and heading on down the road. How is it that America can say anything with a straight face? I watch the man and the woman turn one way, walking like sticks out of sight. The second man heads off in the other direction. Withdrawing the needle, the skin slides closed, leaving only a tiny red hole.
0: you are listening to story about and now for a short break and now we return from our break
1: Later, I'm inside, the living room window just plain glass against the night. Phyllis across the street is at it again. She waters her flowers and yard at about 11.30 every night. She's bent and rounded in the back from age, but she still looks feisty. She's got her white hair and a sassy little bun on top of her head. Once I saw her march over to the couple yelling at each other on the corner and tell the guy he was just an arrogant loudmouth. He took a step toward her, and she didn't budge. She just stood there, all five foot nothing of her, with the eyes of a roach. You ain't never gonna get rid of me, buster. I'm gonna live to be 190 years old. The next time I see them, I'm alone in the house, on the living room couch reading student journals. I tell the community college students to write about what scares them. The things they write about are deportation fears, meth-headed relatives, jail and rehab, and being a parent too young. My heart is wadding up like paper when I hear the shouting. I look up. There they are, just like punctuation, her face cadaverous, something in my chest lurching. I fly out the door waving at them. They stop. What the hell does she want? She's not a man. How much, I say. What? How much for her? How much for an hour? Let's get the fuck out of here, I hear her say. Look, I've got a hundred dollars. I want an hour. A hundred bucks is a hundred bucks, isn't it? He looks down the street. He looks at her. She's got give me a fucking break on her face. She doesn't make eye contact with me once. Once. He peers back down the street, thinks he sees someone, then doesn't. Finally, he turns back to me and waves toward her. She doesn't move. He yells something at her. She's got fuck you on her face. I'm back in my past, inside habits and mistakes, inside things that made me run into fire. But she doesn't know it, like a transplanted heart. I live on this street, in this life always in fear of the body rejecting me. Come inside, I say, across the gap between us. She climbs our wooden stairs and stands in the door frame, bony arms in a knot across her chest. She has long stringy hair permed maybe a year ago, dark circles cupping worn out gray eyes, some sweater from 1992, bell-bottom jeans, denim jacket tied around her waist. You don't wanna look her in the eye, and you can't help looking her in the eye. She looks back outside over her shoulder. I wonder briefly if she sees two lives, two bodies like I did, like I maybe still do. She comes in and I shut the door. I catch a glimpse of the man walking away like an ordinary person. No names. We both understand this. Sit down. I don't want to, she says. What the fuck you want with me? Sit down. She sits down. This is what I, a woman who teaches English all day, think looking at her, a woman who sucks dicks every night, but right now is sitting on my couch. This is what I, an ex-addict reformed by something like love and given something to believe in because of books, think looking at her. This is what I, who could not stand to be alone in a room with just me, think. She looks like Mary. This is what Mary must have looked like after Jesus. No way for the body to bear the miracle, the burden, the unbelievable history of nothing, myth. When I see an image of Christ, I picture a Mary so drawn and gaunt and tired and angry and spent to the point of emaciation that she can barely wear her own face. The Mary on my couch lights a shaky cigarette. What do I think I'm going to do here? Teach her? Then she does something that disperses all my idiotic projections. She puts her cigarette out directly on my coffee table, spits on my throw rug, the restoration hardware coffee table I bought when I got tenure. The throw rug supposedly from Tibet, though I have my doubts. I've got this woman in my house. I have one hour. Sometimes all the hours of our life rip open for an instant, then suture back up as if nothing ever entered. Something in common. You can't stare down a sex worker or a junkie. Either they look away, making you think you're invisible, Or they stare through your skull and out the other side, leaving a hole where your psyche used to be, and you're left some hollowed out moron afraid of crazy people, afraid of ghosts, afraid of your own relentless shadow. Finally, she says, look man, what's all this about? You want something? Crack, horse, weed? You want me to do something? She takes another drag and quivers like an angel. No, not like an angel like an ordinary woman being eaten alive by her own heart, her own veins, her own cunt. I say, look, and I step toward her and put my hand near her neck and shoulder as gently as I can, and she says, I don't fucking lick pussy. I'm not into that shit, but I'll play with your tits if you want. I'll finger you. I look at her for a long minute, feeling stupider than I've ever felt. I drop my hand to its ignorance. How does one respond to words like that? Finally, I tell her, I just wanted to give you a break for an hour, rest, eat, sleep, drink, smoke, do whatever you want. She looks at me like I'm out of my fucking mind. Her eye glances toward the door. I guess you can leave too, I tell her, if that's really what you want. It could be that's really what she wants. It could be she's hoping this is a way out or up. She stays. I leave the room. For exactly one hour, nothing happens. Nothing. And aren't you just a little disappointed? Weren't we all hoping for something else? Here's what I do. Go to my computer and start to write. I don't think I feel benevolent, but I'm afraid I might. I think of things I want to do for her, all of them filtered through my graduate school mind, and I write them down, play her Schubert, wash her hair, give her a foot rub, cook her a real French dinner with six courses, give her my vintage silk dress, watch European lesbian movies with her, read her stories by Colette, paint her fingernails, dunk her in a bubble bath, give her all the money in my savings account, buy her a plane ticket, take photos of her, hold her. Then I cross every single thing off the list. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I shift my point of view like a writer should and do a rewrite, play her classic rock, shave half her head and dye the other side blue, break into the neighbor's house and drink all the whiskey and steal their prescription meds, get high and watch lemonade on flat screen on repeat, then take baseball bats to all the car windows lining my idiotic street, and then run and keep running, tits to the wind. There is a schism in us all. It shows up differently in every woman, or it dissolves into layers of skin and fat and home ownership, tidy haircuts, and well-applied makeup. I'm really rolling in there, alone at my screen. An hour later, I come back fevered with compassion, pumped up from my writing. I got a character shooting out of me, a story emerging, perspiration lining my upper lip, and she's standing there, plain and unimpressed. Is that it? She wants to know. Yeah, I say. That's it. Trying to breathe like a normal person. And then she's flinging open the door, she's gone, he's waiting down the street with another guy. They walk off, growing smaller and smaller in the window, as if they're walking back to childhood. My heart feels like a fist in my chest. What did I just pay for? Was I trying to give her something? Or did I just take something, like a fucking John? I eat four Advil and put on my running gear and sit down on my own couch. Two hours later, my husband returns. By then, my sweat is just dumb, sticky odor. Do I tell him? Once junkie, always a junkie. Turns out a sex worker and a recovering addict and a literature teacher each carry around the same question in their bodies. Does it hurt more to keep the secrets? or to tell them. I pour each of us a glass of Pinot, and he starts on dinner. I like to watch his shoulders while he chops vegetables and sears meat. I like the way the back of his head looks, his long dark hair fastened in a braid or a ponytail like a woman's. I love the spread of his shoulders, the onion and garlic aromatizing the entire house, the sizzling sound of food being put to hot oil. Most of all, I love that it's him, not me, in the kitchen cooking. The nod, the rush, the flood of sensations overtaking a body, the my god of it, the want of wanting it forever. I let each sip of wine linger in my mouth before I swallow. I close my eyes with the swallowing. I'm holding. I haven't felt this way in years and years. I still don't know what I'll say or do. We're deep into dinner when it finally comes. I paid the woman from the street today, I begin, watching his chewing slow, his eyes adjust to the sentence. It takes him zero time to figure out what I mean. We've seen them out our front window so many times. Watched them like HBO. You gave them money? Yes. I paid for an hour of her time. Like cash? Yes. He considers this. He swallows his food. He puts his fork and knife down. It almost feels like one of us is confessing an affair. I mean, not at all. But kinda. Something dark and fast and filled with tension shooting up between us. I pick up my wine glass and drink. I don't know if my cheeks are flushed, but they feel like they might be. My eyes feel alive. In the house, I say. Wait, what? They were in the house? I feel his anger rising like Quicksilver. She was. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the hell did you think you were doing? The questions hang in the air did I think about what I was doing. All I remember is doing it, but I must have. I had the money ready, for one thing. Had I been thinking about it when I got the cash out of the ATM after a grocery store run? But then the drama of an ordinary couple swoops down on us and he's all, Jesus fucking Christ, do you realize you could have been killed or robbed or hurt? But I wasn't, is what comes out and i watch my own arms and hands refill my wine glass then his with complete calm like i'm taking my chances well what the hell happened now he's standing nothing i went upstairs and wrote i came down an hour later and she left he sits back down almost as if someone has let the air out of him You're telling me this hooker was in the house today, alone, and nothing happened? His cheeks are definitely flushed. Well, not nothing, exactly. Come here. I move toward him, grab his hand, and walk him like a pet over to the coffee table. I point to the cigarette scar, and that's when I see it. She's carved something else into the coffee table. Cunt. My mouth twitches, Jesus he says. But underneath his voice I can hear desire rising. Danger does that to people whose lives have become normal. It ignites something you thought wasn't important anymore now that you have a roof over your head and another mammal in the bed every night and enough to eat and wine and a coffee table. Fear, fear comes back into us for a moment. I'm still holding his hand. Fear plus anger plus desire equals life. Safely tucked into your house and home and life and marriage, you can feel dead. Go down on me, I say. He starts to grab my hand and head upstairs. No, no, here. Right here. We are on my side at the living room window. The curtains are open to the night. My husband is in his pretend studio painting. She's been gone a week. I'm watching TV, trying to recognize something. And then, through the window, I hear the murmur of low voices just out of range. The neighborhood watch. I turn from the images on the TV to the image of the walkers. They've all purchased some kind of day-glow vests, matching orange caps, Nikes that glow like lowly beacons with every step. Their flashlights swing back and forth with exaggerated purpose. Women with children are packed onto the middle of the group, men on the outside. They do not look afraid. They are perfect in their movements, synchronized, brutal. They will cover maybe five blocks north and south and five east and west, manifest destiny. I can feel wine bile rising up my throat. I'm about to go get my husband so we can watch them together, so I can puff up and judge them from inside my house and my life. Look at these idiot zombies. What they need is more fear in their lives, not less. And then, then it happens. As they pass directly in front of our house, one of the women in the pack, my God, is it Charisse? spits with all her might onto our overgrown lawn. Anger radiates from my face. Who am I? User. Late that night, before bed, I return to the window. There is no one suspicious on the corner now. There is no one dangerous in the alley. The streets are still empty, a few quiet souls lingering on their porches, no children on the sidewalks. It is the hour of safe and sound. The streets are clean and cured and uncultured. No, that's not what I meant. Uncluttered. I meant uncluttered.
2: Curse Enjoy the crescendo As it gets worse Stoke my laurels t-
0: This story, titled Streetwalker, was an excerpt read by Lydia Yuknovich from her upcoming short story collection, Verge. The music for this episode was composed by Jake Whiston with piano accompaniment by Jordan Warmack. The song Victims of Phalaris was written and performed by Wiston and Warmack, whose music can be found on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to stream your music. Just type in Wiston and Warmack. We also want to thank Jim Dilling Martin and the team at Riverhead Books, as well as Tim Carplus at Yellow Room Recording for engineering the recording with Lydia. Storybound is mixed, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed with the help of James Cook. You can find his music under the name Grain Table. Want to tell us what you think of the show? Find us on Twitter at storyboundpod, or you can tweet at me directly at judebrewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Next week, we'll hear a story from Matt Gallagher with original composition provided by Colin Hogan of the Colin Trio. And now you are about to hear a sit down with Jake Whiston and myself, and we're going to explore the behind the scenes of this episode and how it was made.
3: something that I found particularly challenging was Lydia has a number of tonal like changes within the story that sometimes happen kind of quickly and what I mean by that is that there will be like these kind of light moments of humor that are just kind of peppered in there Mm -hmm. here and there and
0: yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. throw, it, it, it's throwing you this narrative curveball that and when you're reading it off the page, it totally works. But, but if Absolutely. You're, but if you're having to compose to it, you're like, uh, there's, there's, so are you, at that point, are you having to go back, like, quite a bit? Like, are you having to kind of st- take, a, take a few steps back and reorient yourself and, like, I went into this the wrong way? Or are you having to try and figure out a creative way to pivot?
3: I think mostly a creative way to pivot because as I constructed it, uh, con- actually constructed the score with the pieces that I had. Mm-hmm. I did that chronologically. I never went out of order mm-hmm. um, while I was working my th- way through it from from the start to the end. And so that's when I would run up against those little um, roadblocks,
0: especially for the fact that you weren't going off of any text. I mean, I just gave you. The, I just gave <laughs> yes, you the recording, yeah. and it wasn't until afterward that I was like, I could have given you some text to go off of, (laughs) to kind of help guide you.
3: Uh, I am an ass. (laughs) Um, But, and I kind of felt like that was maybe for the best, actually, after the fact. For some reason, I'm not sure if I can completely justify that, but it kind of felt that way. I almost felt like the text would have gotten in the way somehow because it wasn't really about the text anymore. It was about Lydia's reading and her, you know, her
1: performance performance
3: of of the text. Yeah, right.
0: is there any way you can actually um, sort of articulate what it is about those melodies that touch in with the song? Or is it just, I mean, because it, it's so intuitive based. Is that something you even can articulate?
3: There's just something that was right about it. Because um, the, the song is, is kind of tied up with this idea of um, just pain and, and just life and living, just kind of being painful mm-hmm. um, and, and the expression of that pain. And so there's also this kind of literary aspect to it as well, because it's like, okay, this is an author. Her story is quite um, literary. She um, brings up other figures in um, literature and in art in her story, especially in one particular section of it. Mm -hmm. And the song Victims of Hilaris is based off of um, a passage from Soren Kierkegaard's, uh, either or. Um, so, it, and it's, it's how it opens up. There's this, there's this opening passage where, um, he brings up, uh, Phalaris, who was this ancient tyrant who used to, um, apparently, uh, burn his victims alive in a bronze bull, And, uh, I think maybe enjoyed listening to their screaming or something like that. Anyway, he's sure, as, obviously as one would. As one would. Yeah. It, obviously, he's sadistic, but it's like the point that uh, Soren Kierkegaard is making in it is that you know when this is a little bit kind of you know I don't know maybe flowery in some way, um, but I think the essence of it is is beautiful. But he he's comparing the pain of the victims. The victims of Valeris to the poet, you know, the capital P poet, mm-hmm. which is that their uh, their expressions of pain, because he talks about how when they would, uh, you know, well, he compares it to their screams being like the expressions of a poet, and that what the audience is doing. Uh, for the for the poet, is they're saying, "Oh, you know, your words are so beautiful, and they want more, and they want more." But mm-hmm. what they don't realize is that they're asking for more pain from the poet because they're, you know, their screams come out sounding so beautiful mm-hmm. that people want more and more and more of it, or whatever.
0: Yeah, um, well, I find this fitting that you know, with literature, that we're sitting right <laughs> under, right beside a bookshelf. Um,
3: <laughs> we're in, yeah. We're in my home under a makeshift vocal booth that we made. That looks like a, um, a child's tent. Like a lean, made. like
0: a lean-to. You know where you put the tarp. It does.
3: You know. Yeah, it does. Um, made with two chairs. It looks like uh, Jude and I are gonna have a sleepover. <laughs>
0: I used to love sleepovers growing up. Those were the best sleepovers are the best because then you could like, cool, we're going to make stuff. And that's, I'd always try and ra- r- like wrangle my friends, like, let's go make videos. Let's go write stories. Let's go, whatever. And like, dude, can we just like play some games? Like, why do you want to make stuff? <laughs> so now we're grown ups making stuff in your living room. That's
3: right. And I'm going to tell you nothing about my childhood. So that, that did nothing.
0: <laughs> that's why I was really hoping to, to crack you open like an egg and let's get into your, your deep, your deep troubled psyche. Yeah. um, Phenomenal work, man. I just, yeah, I loved hearing you uh, work on this episode. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm,
3: I think I'm proud of it, but it was painstaking.
0: I didn't ask you if you were proud of this. In fact, fact, on a a scale of one to 10, can you tell me how disappointed you are? Not in, just in yourself, you know?
3: Oh, oh. Does this go into the
2: negatives? (laughs)